This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Sam and Rose Stein Institute for Research on Aging's monthly public lecture series. For those of you I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Danielle Glorioso, and I'm the executive director of the Stein Institute. At the Stein Institute, we are committed to advancing lifelong health and well-being through research, training, and community outreach. This public lecture series is an example of one of our community outreach programs that's designed to connect the public with some of the exciting advances that are happening in aging here at the university. We are proud to say that this uh, program has been going on for over 25 years and has been sponsored entirely through donations through people like you. So we appreciate all of your support through the years. Um, To learn more about what we're doing at the Stein Institute, please find us at aging.ucsd.edu. It is such an honor and a privilege to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Natasha Josephowitz. She's a good friend and colleague of the Stein Institute and a long supporter of the work that we do. She also is a true inspiration and a quintessential successful ager. At the young age of 88, she's accomplished more in the last 10 years than many of us could hope to accomplish in a lifetime. She got her master's degree at age 40, she got her PhD at age 50, and has accomplished so many things in between. She has over 20 books and 100 magazine and newspaper articles, and she recently has added blogger for the Huffington Post to her resume. So she really is quite accomplished and just doesn't stop. I think she's going to give us a wonderful presentation tonight, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Natasha Josephowitz. Good evening. I'm going to be talking about a difficult topic. I'm going to be talking about loss. And the reason I'm going to be talking about it is because very often people start doing research and reading about a topic that is personal to them. So I'll start with that. I lost my husband five years ago. We were pathologically symbiotic because he was a professor at UCSD, professor of economics. I'm a professor, was a professor of management at San Diego State. And so we did everything together. We wrote together. We taught together. We did consulting. And so when he died, I was a mess. It was really, really hard. And then two years ago, I lost a first cousin. I lost my brother, who was six years younger. And last year, I lost my son. <clears throat> so loss has been something that I really wanted to understand. And because I was grieving so badly, um, I thought, well, how do other people grieve? What is it like for everybody else? And what does it depend on? And so I thought, well, besides reading the literature, I thought I would interview people. I interviewed 50 people who had had a fairly recent loss, so they were still uh, kind of in their minds. And one of the things I decided to do is to interview people closer to my own age. I'll be 88 on Halloween. I'm a certified witch. (laughs) Because this older population have a very different issue than younger people. First of all, of course, their parents have died. The kids have either moved away, or if they're there, they have their own lives, they're busy. And they don't have work anymore. 
and very often they isolated and they had had long marriages. So it's different from young people who have lost someone. They have parents, they have jobs, they have kids. So I decide to concentrate on that population. But when I'm going to be talking about loss, loss is everything. Loss is a parent, a child, a spouse. It is also the loss of a job, the loss of an identity, the loss of a community, the loss of a home. These are all losses. And so as you listen to the way I'm going to talk about it, think about all the losses you've had and whether what I say works for you in terms of understanding. Um, You remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? She wrote this book. This is 35 years ago. She wrote the book called The Five Stages of Grief. She wrote it for people who were dying, and the media took it for people who were grieving. So it, it helped some because I always think it's interesting to take a word, a name, identify an emotion with a name. It helps to understand, oh, this is what I'm going through. That's what it is. I think it helps. And so she, she was helpful. But this is 35 years ago, and so I have now worked on a different uh, sample. I call it the seven emotional states of loss and stepping stones to healing. So I want to start with the first thing that I came across. Uh, one of the things that I found, which is not in the literature, is that men and women grieve and heal very differently. And I want to talk to you and start with that, because that was a new finding which I did not expect. Well, for instance, gender, of course, is a factor. So are value systems, life experiences, the way we have been raised, culture. But one of the things that I found is that men, when they lose someone, have a 6% higher rate of suicide than the general population. However, after one year, have you all heard about the casserole brigade? You know, this is all these women who come with casseroles because it's a single man. After a year, a, a man is already with the best casserole. Oh, oh I'm going to, okay, I'm going to start with a really bad joke. It's a terrible joke. Okay, um, this is in a retirement community. A man comes in as a new resident, and one of the women says, oh, you're a new resident. Where do you come from? He said, well, I just came out of jail. Jail? Why were you in jail? Well, I murdered my, la- my wife. Oh, so you're single. <laughs> okay, this is funny and it's not funny because what it says is as a man grows older, his pool of available females grows larger. And as a woman grows older, her pool of available males grows smaller. And so this is why by the time a man has been grieving for about a year, there's a lot of women with casseroles. Let me tell you some of the difference I found. For instance, uh, men tended to increase their activities after loss. Women tended to to decrease them. Um, I asked, if I would ask a man, how would you help a friend of yours who had just lost his wife? The often answer was, well, I would take him out for lunch, we'd play a game of golf, and we'd talk of other things. If I ask a woman, what would you do if a friend of yours lost her husband? Oh, I would come with food and we'd sit and we'd talk about it. Totally different way of helping people. The way, the way people think. 
people should be helped. And in fact, it is true that it works. By the way, you know, you've all heard, if you don't uh, go through your grief and if you don't work through it, it'll come back to haunt you. It's not true. Denial works. (laughs) And so don't uh, say, oh, it's terrible, denial is terrible. I'll give you an example. I um, I was running a workshop for grandparents who had lost a grandchild. And one of the grandmothers said, Oh, I don't know my daughter, I don't know what to do about her. It's just awful. The pictures of the baby are all over the house. She's just not moving on. And another grandmother says, I'm so upset about my daughter. She has no pictures of the baby anywhere. She's just not moving on. I'm saying this because what I'm really saying is that there is no right way to grieve. But people have expectations of how someone else should grieve. So Never listen to anyone who says, you should have, you couldn't have, whatever. It is very personal. And don't listen to people who have their own idea of how it should be done. So, um, grief workshops, mostly women. Because women cry and get in touch with their emotions. And men say, I don't like seeing people cry. And I don't like to go back to where I was because I want to move on. That was a, a very common thing. Depression. Depression in women shows itself, sleep problems, uh, crying, feeling of hopelessness, lethargy, feeling too tired to do anything, go anywhere. Just getting out of bed sometimes is difficult. Men exhibit something totally different. If you know a man who has just lost a spouse, he may exhibit risk-taking and self-destructive behaviors, substance abuse, anger, irritability, and that is a male way of depression. So also, there is a, um, a different way of, of analogies. This is, I'm going to give you what one man told me that no woman could have possibly said. I said, so I, I knew your wife, and this must be hard. How are you dealing with this loss? And the man said, well, you know, it's like golf. I miss a shot, I don't obsess. I mean, can you imagine a woman saying something like this? No, it's a very male kind of thing and denial, and it worked for him. Men pretend more than women that they're okay. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Women do that too, but men do it more often. Well, you know, big boys don't cry, and so that's where that comes from. Uh, the other thing that was I found interesting is that I, I looked at something no one has ever looked at, and that is birth order. And this is what I found. Now remember, I've only interviewed 50 people. So statistically not significant. But what this says is it's maybe worthwhile uh, researching further. When people were raised as only children, they had learned resources of being alone, of finding friends on their own, and of being comfortable being alone. This later translated into behaviors when they were widowed. So that people who were raised as only children did better at being alone than people who were raised with a lot of siblings. I thought that was an an interesting interesting thing. And then I looked at food patterns. Men will buy a rotisserie chicken, stand at the kitchen sink, and eat it with their hands. Women will sit down with a napkin and a knife and fork and a plate. It's, again, different. So anyhow, I thought, you know, these are differences which I I thought were curious. 
that um, nobody had ever found and looked at. So what I, have, what I would like to do now, I would like to talk about the various states of grief. This one is not really one of the first states because it's not universal. Um, I call it pre-grief or pre-loss. These are people who have been caregivers for weeks, months, sometimes even years. And so these people who have been caregivers have dropped out of the activity scene and of the social scene. They are there as caregivers, and their time is really with the person who is ill. That person dies. So not only have they dropped out of life in a way, they now have a large gap in their day what to do with And so this is very difficult. These are the people who need more than anyone friends who will um, invite them, uh, take them into activities, help them move back into the stream of life. What I've done, I have written a poem for each one of these states. The reason is these poems come from the time that I was in. So they are all time sensitive to what I was going through. It's called Still at Hospice. We're still here because his back is still hurting. He has prostate cancer, metastasized to his bones. So we're here to get some relief. But the relief comes at a cost. Opiates put you to sleep, so he lies there only half conscious. And as the hours become days and the pain is only relieved by increasing the medications, the days are turning into weeks. We came here believing he would get better and come home. But instead, he came home to die in a different hospital bed, in one in our continuing care unit, two floors up from our apartment, in our retirement community. He can see the ocean from the window and hear the waves. Hospice people come here too, adjusting the pumps. The nurses are at his bedside day and night. At first, he has trouble talking, then swallowing, then moving then breathing, and finally living. So let me start with the first of what I call the emotional states of grief. I call this shock. This is what happens. The person, your loved one, has just died, and what do you have to do? There is the funeral. There are all these people, the uh, family, the friends, they're all there. You have to think about where they're going to stay and what they're going to eat. And, and so you're busy doing all that stuff. And so that works while you're in shock because you're really not fully aware of what is going on. And shock even happens to people who have been caregivers and who knew that their husband or wife was going to die because when a person disappears from this earth, it's just a shock. It's just very difficult to comprehend how that's possible. It's unbearable. So what I suggest is that when you know someone is, or when you're old, and a couple of people here have white hair, um, when you're older and you know that, well, how many years you're going to have left, do your own funeral arrangements ahead of time. Do everything. I mean, I have everything in place. I have my casket. I know where I'm going to be buried. I've chose the music. All the kids have to do is show up, and everything is paid for. I suggest that you do that because when you have prepared nothing and your loved one has died and you have to start dealing with that, that is really awful. So I wrote a poem called, Where Are You? Give me a sign. Blow out the candle. Rustle the curtain. Make a sound in the wind. 
Touch my cheek with a breath of air. Give me a sign so I will know you are here, somewhere with me. Please let me feel you in the room, in the air, in the energy, pulsating in the universe. My love, where are you? I would sit in bed and i say, okay, Herman, there are people who see their loved ones afterwards and heal them and so on, so do something. <laughs> no, nothing, didn't. The next date, I called numbness. It's amazing how many people I talked to who said things like, I felt like a zombie, I felt like a ghost, I felt nothing, I didn't cry, I don't know what's the matter with me, I felt abnormal. So if you remember nothing from this talk except this, being abnormal is normal. In fact, if you were not feeling abnormal, I'd worry. And so this is a time when you already have to now deal with all the paperwork. You, you have to have ahead of yourself, know ahead of you who is going to be your lawyer, your accountant. You need help with paperwork. There's a huge amount of paperwork. Also, this is a time where judgment can be impaired. This is a time where the immune system is weakened. And so what is important during this time is that you really pay attention, or your friend should pay attention, that you sleep enough hours, that you eat, that you exercise, that you take care of yourself physically and mentally. It is a strange period, and I'm wondering whether it's kind of for the brain to help people not be so soon in this terrible kind of pain. So I wrote tired. Ever since he died, I have felt tired. I wake up tired. I may have a bit of energy during the day, but then I'm exhausted afterwards. I have become a person who drags her feet, pushing herself out of an armchair with a sigh. I walk slower. I think slower. And everything matters less. The way I look, what clothes I wear, whether I need a haircut. I'm also more forgetful. I have to keep checking my calendar lest I forget to go somewhere or do something I promised to do. I forget who just asked me a question or even what that question was. I walk into a room and wonder why I'm there. I mix up names and faces and worry whether I'm losing my mind. I wonder whether I have MCI, mild cognitive impairment, but maybe it's not even mild anymore. Yes, I'm more tired and forgetful than I was a year ago. I want to um, give you permission to feel exhausted and to feel that there's something wrong with you because there is something wrong with you when you are mourning. And so if you worry about what's going on, it does pass. It is a state, it is a state during numbness where you feel that you're not functioning quite right and that is a normal state. And so this is so that you, you, know, you, you don't worry about what's going on with me. The next one I call disbelief. Disbelief is that third state which slowly numbness becomes kind of a cognitive disconnect. The phone rings, oh, it's him. You will hear footsteps in the hallway, oh, it's her. You, could, you know, it, my mother died, what, 20 years ago. I still sometimes think, oh, I should tell my mother. I said, no, no, I can't. And so disbelief is also the time when you start saying, our room, our bed, our thing, and forget to, to say that, no, you're alone. This is not real. And so the unconscious has not caught up with the new reality of the life. And so you have to kind of reprogram your reflexes and your habits during that time. And I have the poem called Maybe. 
Maybe it's all a mistake. Maybe it wasn't real. Maybe it was a bad dream. Maybe it didn't happen. Maybe when I come home tonight, he'll be there saying, Hi, how was it? And I'll tell him all about it, except he wasn't there, and so he didn't ask. The next one is reality. Reality is maybe the toughest one because that's when it hits. It hits that there is a finality to death. There's the permanence of the absence that you now have to live without the one you cannot live without. And this is also the time for guilt. Maybe I could have. Maybe I should have. Maybe why didn't I? Maybe the doctors. Maybe you start asking yourself all these questions of what you could have done differently, should have done, couldn't have done. And so that is also a very common thing that people have worrying about a different outcome. And so um, this, this kind of um, asking yourself all the time is, is pervasive. Also what happens during this reality, and it, it's very strange, um, n- no one is a witness to your life. You just realize, well, I mean, my husband died five years ago, and sometimes I wish when I read something in the New York Times, I, I could call in and say someone to say someone, hey, this is a really good article. Now, I have a zillion friends. I live at White Sands, which is a retirement community. I never eat alone. I eat with a lot of friends. It's not the same. No one knows what I had for breakfast. No one cares. No one is the center of my life. I'm not the center of anyone's life. It is that piece. Now, some people miss it. Not everybody does. I miss this kind of intimacy, and that is pervasive, and that is forever. And so even now, five years later, I sometimes wish, once no one knows I'm here, no one cares, no one's going to ask me, how was it? So, And that part is sad, but one has to live with that. And so um, I, call, I wrote a poem called Pain, but before, you know, I made up a theory which I called a dopamine fix. It's my own theory. Okay, this is how it goes. You have a spouse. Your spouse puts his or her arm around you. You get a little surge of pleasure. Uh, You're across a room. That person kind of goes like this. You get a little surge of pleasure. They give you a little kiss. They ask you a question. You get a little surge of pleasure every time a spouse that you love pays a little attention to you. That surge of pleasure is dopamine. Dopamine is a drug. When that person dies, you are on dopamine withdrawal, you're on drug withdrawal. So that if you don't sleep and don't eat and don't feel well, it is like any drug withdrawal. Now, you may be surprised that I'm going to give you another example. I'm going to give you an example of a pet. Every time your dog wags his tail or the cat sits on your lap and you pet your pet, you get a little bit of pleasure. It's a little bit of dopamine. The pet dies. You're on drug withdrawal. People who've never had a pet say, oh, come on, your dog died, get another dog. They don't get it. A pet who has been your companion for many years and part of your life, you also are on drug withdrawal from the dopamine that the pet gave you. This is a theory that I think might be important because if you think about it and you feel this dopamine missing, you say, okay, I need some dopamine. Now, what's the dopamine? Okay, call a friend. Uh, go for a walk. 
ice cream cone. I mean, something to give you a little dopamine because you know that you're on drug withdrawal. Uh, Pain is my poem. The pain comes on suddenly. While I drive or eat dinner or talk to a friend, the pain is terrible. It starts somewhere in the center of my body and radiates out everywhere. It's the pain of being aware of how I miss him. In that moment, the overpowering awareness of his forever absence is there, no one to turn to, nowhere to go, not getting away, no possible refuge, no stopping the pain. It sits there, enveloping me, and I'm helpless in its grip, contemplating with awe the immensity of how much pain one can bear without dying from it. The thing that I want to say about this is that I absolutely guarantee it diminishes, it gets better. But at the moment that you're in that kind of pain after recent loss, you can't imagine ever being better, but you do. The next state I call alienation. That's again one that I have not seen written about. This is weird. A lot of the people I talk to, especially women, and it happened to me, you're a couple and you meet with another couple. You're now single. Couples have dropped friends who are single. It's a very strange thing. I think it has to do with kind of an awkwardness about odd numbers, uh, three as a crowd, uh, the fifth wheel. And also another thing that happened, which is really kind of strange, you know, you have. I'm with my husband, and there's another couple, and we meet for dinner, and then we split the bill, and then we go home. Now these same couples invite me, and now I'm grateful. I say thank you for having me. It's different, and I came across something which I really don't like. I'll tell you what it is. I had a friend called Ruth. Ruth lost her husband. What do I say to my husband? I said, you know, Ruth lost her husband. We really should invite Ruth. Should. Single people become shoulds. People are sorry for them. It's not, oh, no, let's invite Ruth. It'll be fun. It is, she lost her husband. We should. I became a should. People were nice to me and, and took me out, and I was grateful. A lot of people stopped, stopped taking me out. By the way, I want to say, if ever anybody wants to take you out when you're single, accept, even though if you don't want to go because they won't ask you twice. <laughs> and the other thing that I, I, I encourage people to do during this part of alienation is when you are invited, you need to reciprocate. I live in a retirement community so I can invite people to my retirement community. If you're at home, you can invite people to your home, make a meal. Or you say, you pay for dinner, I'll pay for the movie. Or I have done the other thing. Uh, Some people have invited me several times. I called the restaurant ahead, gave them my credit card, and after dessert, I pretend to go to the bathroom and sign. Mm -hmm. And so you need to reciprocate because it gets uncomfortable. Because, you know, in couples, the men are macho. They always pick you up and they always pay for dinner. No, no, I want to pay for dinner. And then they take you home. And so you, you feel you're kind of like a burden. Uh, it's an unpleasant time, but I think it's very real for a lot of people. So I wrote two poems. It's good for me. Everything is an effort. I make myself go out with friends, go to cultural events, because I know it's good for me. 
but I make myself do it. It's a conscious effort. I used to look forward to all kinds of things. I don't look forward to anything anymore. I just do it because it's good for me. And the other poem is called Alone at a Party. Going alone to a party, will the people there be friendly? Will someone talk to me? Or will I stand in the corner, glass in hand, scanning the room for a familiar face, not finding one, looking for a smile or nod, approaching close-knit groups, unable to enter? I am a stranger among the natives, an alien in a foreign land. I will go home early tonight. That has happened to me. But I'll give you a strategy. If you have to go to an event and you're not quite comfortable that you're going to be there by yourself and not know people, go with someone, even if you don't like them. It doesn't matter. Go with someone, anyone. And so you have someone to talk to so you don't feel standing there and say, oh my God, this is awful. The next one I call reinvention. You go from being half a couple to a whole person. And so you have to reinvent yourself you reinvent yourself from an, into a new single life. So you change your identity. You become a whole person. You're not half. You reinvent yourself in order to move on and to stand on your own two feet. Reinvention is the purposeful in, in, in transformation of your perception about yourself in the world. It is two steps forward, one step back. And so when you reinvent yourself, you have to start a whole new language. You don't say our and we. We say I and mine. It's different. And you need to be conscious of how you do that, to reinvent yourself into this other person. Now, I'm going to read you a poem which is embarrassing, but I think it's important. Looking at men. I caught myself looking at men. I have not done that in 70 years. Then it used to be boys. Now it's older men in my age group. I look and wonder whether they're married. I would like to go out with a male companion for a quiet dinner, perhaps a movie, so that we can talk about it later. I have women friends. Why isn't it the same? I'm somehow not sure I am allowed to feel this way. He died just several years ago. Is it too soon for me to wish for couplehood? Am I being disloyal to him and his memory? I feel guilty catching myself scanning men. Um, I mean, I'm a little embarrassed reading this poem, but I know I'm not alone. Now, not everybody feels this way. They are, I have friends who say, oh, I'm happy to be single. I don't need anyone. Um, I still would like to have a companion. I'm old. I mean, I'm this old woman, and I still want a companion. What's wrong with me? But I'm not alone. Uh, We are meant to be couples. We come in pairs. And so it's interesting. Men have lost a caretaker. Women have lost a handyman, a financial advisor. Um, It's different. But we have lost. So I wrote a funny poem. I called it Caring About Not Caring. The things I used to care about, I no longer do. But I really do care that I don't care about the things I used to care about. (laughs) And then finally, we get to what I call the new normal. The new normal is where I am right now and where everybody eventually lands. 
And that is morphing into an okay single person. Uh, it's an arrival place, the new normal. It is really living again, not just surviving. So now life can be good again. Some new adventures are possible and enjoyable. In this state, you are able to form new friendships, which are meaningful and enduring. You have friends to go out with, share a meal, travel with. You may be alone, but you're not lonely. In fact, I used to dread coming home into my very lone room, but now it's a refuge. It's not solitary confinement like it used to be. So one feels more like a, like a grounded person, and so kind of a belief in one's ability to manage life. So because of this particular group that I interviewed, which were 60s to late 90s, um, most people wanted a, a, a companion. Uh, a love affair, no. I don't think at this age nobody wants to go to bed with anybody. We don't look so good. But, um, <laughs> but it is more true of uh, widows than of widowers. Um, widowers find companionship very easily and sometimes get married to a much younger women. It's much more difficult for older women to find a companion. Now, as I told you, um, single men are at a premium, and especially in the community where I live, it's three-quarters single women and one-quarter single men. Um, I wrote Amazing. Today, I have decided that I am not half a couple mourning the one that's gone, for I have integrated him within me. And so I am a whole person, standing on my own two feet, independent and strong. There is nothing I cannot do, for there is nothing I can't imagine. I have no fears, not of living nor of dying. I'm doing the first, the best I know how, until the second stops me, hopefully, in my tracks. I feel the wisdom of my years, and learning that I can use well to make it easier for others. Mine journey draws to an end. I savor the moments in ways new to me. A quietness has taken hold, like a new distance, a perspective, an understanding I know not exactly of what, a comfort in my place, a knowing of my time. The word may be serenity. It exists even in new adventures, in willingness, willingness for risks, in shoulder shrugs at failures, in smiles at foibles, and secret laughter at the amazingness of it all. Um, these journeys from grief to healing are amazing. And again, I really want to emphasize that there is no better way to do it. Some of these steps are sequential, but not for everybody. Some of them don't exist for some people. There might even be new ones I don't even know about. Some are recycled, go back again. And so uh, even though they may be helpful in terms of identifying what it is where you're at, they are not immutable. And I don't want you to think, oh, this is what I'm supposed to go through. If it does, then you understand it, and if not, then not. Then I want to talk about one which is really not one of the steps, but I call it post-grief. It's more unusual, but it does exist. These are people who uh, have done well, have pro progressed, and then regress, and then go back to earlier emotional states, a song, a scent, a photo, 
triggers an instant of sharp pain. It still happens to me. And this may impact the mood for several hours or even days. Anniversaries, holidays, that's always hard. That stays hard for a long time. And so everybody's in a celebratory mood and you're missing this one person. If it comes on suddenly and then gets resolved, that's normal. If, on the other hand, it seems to linger on and on, it's called complicated grief. And then at this point, one needs to see a healthcare professional. Missing him again. He has been gone for several years, and I'm okay. He does not live in my head anymore. He lives in my heart. By the way, that's an interesting concept. When you are mourning, he's in, he or she is in your head all the time. Then when you are doing better, they're not in the head, they're in your heart. That feels better. And yet sometimes, unexpectedly, I feel I'm back to just after he died. I'm missing him, I'm hurting, I feel disoriented, desperately wishing him back. I remember all that I have lost, that I will never have again. It has been years since he died. It feels like yesterday. So that happens, and one has to be tolerant to people who are going through this process. Now, I want to give you, um, I don't know, I hate to call it advice. When you know someone who has lost someone, one of the most important things you can do is call them every morning. And I'll tell you why. When someone has died, the one thing that's missing, you wake up in the morning and there's no one there. Call every single morning. Hi, how are you? What are you doing today? Someone cares. There's a voice. You don't have to do it forever, but you see how the person is doing. I have several friends where I live. I call every morning, three months for four months, and then tapers off, and it's okay. I think it's an important thing to do. So in conclusion, I do want to say a few things. Grief can be long or short. Um, Some of these you won't experience, some you will. They're not sequential, I want you to remember that, or they may be sequential. I just want to be sure that what I have just said is not cast in stone. All in all, I think of life as stepping stones. I think of life as you go on a step with one foot, and then you're kind of there, quivering. And then you put your other foot on, and then you steady for a while. And then you have to go on another step. And so there's always another step. So wherever you are, and how awful it is, there's always one more step that you can go on. And so I wrote healing. When one is in the middle of pain, it is impossible to envisage a time without it. Yet that time comes unexpectedly, surprising me by its suddenness, from an agonizingly slow healing to a world of brighter colors, to a lighter step, to being whole again. There is an old saying that when someone you love dies, the main difference is that he is no longer outside of you. He is inside. I have incorporated him. I am poor for the lack of his physical presence, but I have become richer for his continuing to exist in me. And so this is what has been helpful to me. I'll stop right here. Thank you. I'm done with this piece. And now we're going to have questions, if you like. So I don't know. Thank you.
I'm very happy to listen to any comments or any suggestions. Everything is a work in progress. And so I'm still learning um, about this whole grief process and the healing part. So if you have questions or comments or suggestions that might be useful to other people, um, ask the question, say it loud, and then I'll repeat the question. Any, question, any questions or comments? Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, I've, I've had quite a few losses, but the one that really hit me the hardest was a 15-year-old who was playing Russian roulette while I was entering the Greek tragedy in Washington and a high on LSD, and she lost. And I took, I came back and I went on a drunk for about six months in Ireland. Uh, and finally I went on some Prozac just to start feeling normal, but it took me a year, basically. But one of the best comments I had from anyone was, you may feel you're going mad the first time. Can we say that again? It's what? Is you may feel you're going mad, and you will be seeing her. And I did. I saw lights. I saw all kinds of things the first year. And then I started to see butterflies and other things. And I don't care if it's my imagination. Now, I, I also teach. I'm 77. And my students, you're a baby. <laughs> my students gave me my life back. And also some holy terriers, the dogs that I got from shelters. And I think a dog is incredible to get in bed with you for some comfort. But I also, seeing that I'm Irish and my whole family are drunks, I find going to an Al-Anon meeting or other meetings, uh, this, this is a way to meet people and I get regular hugs from them. And I really advise everyone I live alone with my holy carriers to get hugs regularly and to go up. All the things you said are right on. Uh, I, I just thank you so much. I heard a TED talk. I would ask you, so I really have a little bit of a question. Uh, he, it was a happiness talk. And it said, and I, by the way, yes, I see something in a movie and I can start crying like that. that. But she also gave me the gift of having no fear because I don't fear death anymore. You know, you said some very important things. Uh, what was important, what, what was said is, the person who died was 15 years old? 15 years old. Total shock. Yeah. I didn't think of it. She was with her brother who was supposed to be taking care of her. Yes. I have no idea that there was a gun in the house. She was with a boyfriend I'd forbidden. It just was and from a drug dealer Right. And what was mentioned is the importance of having a pet. And that is because I just, a friend of mine just lost her husband, and we went to Helen Woodward's and we got a cat. That's where I got it. Really? Okay. And, and the difference is, she, she said to me, I can't go home. It's so lonely. It's uh, so empty. And once she had a cat, she said, I can't wait to go home. My kitty is sitting there waiting for me to come. And so, yes, the pleasure of a pet works. And you mentioned hugs. Yes. Hugs are good for the immune system. You know, by the way, this, uh, it's interesting how these are biological things. They're actually good for, hu uh, human system, for the immune system. You know, I, women have said to me, um, it helps to cry. And I'm thinking, 
why does crying help? What is this about tears? And so I started researching tears and what are tears made of. Tears that come from grief have a toxic element in them. And so, in fact, that toxic element is being released through tears. And I thought it was interesting. I didn't know that. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Uh, I think it, it was perhaps implied in your points that the thing that I was interested in is the feeling of relief. Uh, we have a friend who for many years had a very difficult time caring for his wife day and night. And now that his wife has passed, we think he must feel a great deal of relief. And that maybe connects with your that's a very interesting comment. The feeling of relief one gets when someone you've been taking care of has died after a long illness and sometimes with pain. You know, it's not that simple. There's a feeling of relief, and then there's a f very often a feeling of guilt about the relief. So yes, there's relief, and then are you okay about feeling relief? Is that Maybe not okay, and you feel some guilt. Relief is um, a two-edged sword, but yes, there is there is both. Thank you for that comment. It's it's important. Yes, any yes, anyone else? I might make a comment, uh, but pick up on your point about someone call you every morning. Uh, I'm 93, and my wife had Alzheimer's. You look good. <laughs> He just said he's 93, and that's why I'm saying he's looking good. Yeah. But my point is, I took care of her at home. She died in my arms. It was over 10 years of 24-7. I was totally prepared for her death. Okay? A week after she passed, I started thinking, I need to sell everything and leave. I want to go hide somewhere. Uh, within a couple of weeks, I had high blood pressure. I started going to see doctors. I had more problems. But the, the thing that, you know, it took several months, but the thing that really counted was my daughter called me every morning, every night, during the week, and every weekend she came and took me somewhere. That was so important to me. This is an incredibly important comment. He's 93. His wife died of Alzheimer's. And uh, he had all kinds of health problems afterwards. You know why? It's because what I said, your immune system gets weaker after loss. And so this is why some of the things that were on hold uh, physically uh, came out. But he had a daughter who called every day and took him out. Those of us who have kids who are available that way are incredibly fortunate. Yes, thank you for that comment. It is incredibly important. Kids sometimes don't know. And, you know, we don't always ask. We don't always say to our children, Call me every day. Well, I told her I didn't need her, but she, yeah. she knew better. Okay. That's good. By the way, I want to say something else. Um, you know, very often I see uh, couples uh, who are thinking of moving into a community. By the way, I believe in community living. I believe that people should not live alone, older, and isolated. Right now I'm involved at the UCSD new department. It's called Technology and Aging. And we're looking at how technology can help the Part of the population that is growing the fastest is 85 plus. 
and the baby boomers, that big curve, every day 10,000 people become 65 and are on Medicare. So there is that huge number of older people coming in. We call it the silver tsunami. And there are not enough humans, young humans, to take care of this. So we're looking at how technology can possibly help. So I want to make a pitch for living in a community. Um, I, I happen to be in White Sands. And one of the things I find, which is funny, very often couples are interested in maybe moving to community, and she usually is, and he usually is not. And so I tell to the men, well, you know, you're not interested because you've been living in assisted living all your life already. <laughs> okay, any other questions? Sorry? How long does it take to grieve? Oh, my God. There is, n- there is no consensus. There is nothing written, this should be this long or this should be that long. There are cultures who program, like, for instance, the Jewish culture says after one year you should go out and um, be in the community. And in the old days, I mean, Abraham and all these people, if you didn't go out in the community after one year, you were stoned. So you had a year. But I'm not saying that this is, this is meaningful. Um, it depends on what you've experienced. Uh, it depends on where you are and what you can do with your life and how resilient you are. And there is no, there's no one who can tell you how long it should be or shouldn't be. Tell me more about what it is. Your question has another question. What is it? Well, I lost my mom and my husband in less than two years. My husband died about ten months ago, and I just, just wondering how long would you... Okay, you lost your mother and your husband close together? Because that makes it harder. When you lose two members of your family and the deaths are close together, that's kind of a double whammy. And so it, it takes twice as long. Give yourself twice as long as if you would just with one person. Be kind to yourself. Allow yourself. Okay, anyone else? Shall we end here? Well, thank you for all being here. Now, wait, wait, I have something to say. Wait, wait. I, I wrote a book <laughs> called Living Without the One You Cannot Live Without. I've been told this book is very helpful to people who are experiencing loss. I'd be glad to do that. So thank you all for being here. I love you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.